Well, welcome to Center Church. If you're new, we're really, really glad that you're here. And it is a great time to be new at Center Church for two reasons. Uh, Number one, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series today in the book of James, as you just saw. And James is incredibly practical. If you come for the next five weeks, if you engage with us, I really believe it's going to help you grow in your faith. The second reason it's a great time to be new is we just planted six new missional communities, okay? Missional communities are how we do groups here. It's how we do deep intentional community. And here's what you need to know. We're not just a church with missional communities. We're a church of of missional communities, which means if you're not engaged in one of our groups, you're not experiencing kind of the full expression of what Center Church is. But the good news is that we have new ones and we have space in those new ones, but I'll be honest with you, they're filling up fast. By God's grace, we planted six new groups and both the groups that planted those groups and the new groups have all got new people. And so some of you are getting connected from the weekend or in other ways. We're really, really grateful for that. And when you plant new groups, you grow in two different ways as a church, okay? Number one, it's a chance for many of you who are already connected to step up into greater levels of leadership. So I know some of you had never led a group before and you stepped up and said, hey, raise my hand, I'll lead a group and now you've taken on this new level of leadership. Others of you were, uh, man, not that involved in a group beforehand, but now you're leading out in prayer and in mercy or in some way in your group. Praise God for that. That's maturity, that's discipleship. The other way it helps us grow in discipleship is it creates room for new people to get connected. And some of you have done that. You've come to our weekend and you've said, man, I wanna get in community. I wanna choose to live in community with other believers and we have space for you. So if you're new, we're glad that you're here and we love to help you get connected. And what I want to do right now is I just want to pray for our church, that we would be a church that chooses to live in community. Because here's what we know, there are a million obstacles to living in community. There are a million reasons why we wouldn't do it. So I just want to pray that God would give us the grace to do it. And then we're going to jump into the book of James. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, you created us for community and we flourish when we're in community, God, but there are a lot of obstacles to it. So God, give us the grace as a church, man, to choose to live in community with other believers and to experience the power and the health and the hope that comes when we do that, God. We love you and we pray that you open our eyes as we study the book of James together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to James chapter one. Type to or turn to James chapter one. And here's what we all know, ready? It is easy to believe the right things. It is harder to do the right things. It's easy to believe that you should forgive. It's hard to forgive. It's easy to believe that you should be a generous person. It's hard to actually be generous. It's easy to believe you should live a pure life sexually. It's much harder to actually do that. Orthodoxy, Right beliefs are pretty easy. You could read them in a book. Orthopraxy, right living, is much more difficult. Well, here's the deal. The book of James is mostly about orthopraxy. How does your belief in the gospel change how you live? How does your belief in the gospel change how you live? That is what the book of James is all about. And chapter one is extraordinarily relevant for us today because it deals with two things that we all face in life. You ready? It deals with trials and it deals with temptations. If I asked you to raise your hand and said, hey, over the last three months, have you faced a trial or a temptation, every hand in this room would go up. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian your whole life or you're just sort of exploring Christianity. We all face trials and temptations. And what James is gonna do is he's gonna show us how a belief in the gospel changes how you face those two things. Look at verse one with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So we know that a man named James wrote this book, but there are four different Jameses in the New Testament, so that's not that helpful. So which James are we dealing with? Well, other places in scripture and church history tell us that this was James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
You may or may not know this, but Jesus was the oldest of seven, seven children, all right? So Mary had Jesus, then she married Joseph. They had four more sons and at least two daughters. So if Mary was around today, she'd be driving one of those 12 passenger conversion vans, okay? Like that is, she'd be shopping at Costco, praise God, right? Like that is what she would be doing. Jesus was the oldest of seven. James was one of those brothers. Here's what's interesting. James did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. James thought his brother was delusional. John chapter seven and Mark chapter six say that James went so far that he tried to get Jesus to come home. He was like, you are off your rocker, man. He did not believe that his brother was the son of God until Jesus resurrected from the dead and appeared to James one-on-one. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus appeared to James and James was overwhelmed by the historical evidence of the resurrection and he became a Christian. That might be your story. You may have, might have grown up in a family that went to church, but you weren't convinced. You had a lot of doubts. You're like, I don't think this is legit until you started studying the re- evidence of the resurrection. I was talking to a girl just last week who came to faith in Christ at our church. And when we first got connected to her, she was a pretty hardened atheist. But she got connected to Center Church and a missional community here. She started coming to services and she started investigating the resurrection. And she read Mere Christianity and she read a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And she got to the point where she said, I don't believe this because it's emotionally helpful. I believe this because, because it's historically true. And because it's historically true, it is emotionally helpful. But she came to faith in Christ through her mind and then it impacted her heart. And that might be your story. You might be here with a lot of questions and we're glad you're here. What we wanna do is journey with you just like James did and investigate the evidence of the resurrection because when you come to see that the resurrection is historical fact, it fundamentally changes who you are. That's what happened to James. You see how he introduced himself? He said, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant of God is one of those popular ways that key leaders in the New Testament introduce themselves. James did it, John did it, Paul did it, Peter did it, and Jude did it. It's a pretty good five, okay? They all introduced themselves as servants of God. Now, why was that? Because here's what we learn in the New Testament, ready? As the gospel goes deeper in your heart, it produces a posture of service in your life. As the gospel goes deeper in your heart, it produces a posture of service in your life. Now, why would that be the case, right? Why would belief in the gospel, orthodoxy, produce service as orthopraxy? Well, think about it. Jesus was by nature a servant. In Mark 10, 45, he said, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And on the night before his death, he didn't say, hey guys, I really need some me time. Instead, he put a towel around his waist. He got down on his hands and knees and he washed the dirt and the filth off of his disciples' feet. You see, serving was not something that Jesus did. Serving is an aspect of who Jesus is. And if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, now it is an aspect of who you are. Which begs the question, what does your level of service say about how deep the gospel has gone in your life? What does your level of service say about your level of faith? Because if the gospel is going deeper into your life and you're reflecting on how Christ saved you by serving you, all of a sudden you want to serve other people. The way we say it around here is saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. Which is one of the reasons that we have 40 or 50 volunteers here every Sunday serving on various volunteer teams. Man, they're investing in the next generation in our kids' ministry. They're helping you find a place to park, even though it's raining outside. They're running our board back there so that you can hear me. They're singing on the worship team. Are they serving because we need them to serve? Or are they serving because they need to serve? I would say they're serving because they need to serve. If Disney came to me and said, hey, we love what you're doing. We would like to staff every event for you. I would say, thanks, but no thanks. Even if Chick-fil-A came to me and said that, right? 
I would say, hey, thank you, but, but no thank you. Because we don't ask you to serve because we need it. We ask you to serve because you need it. Because we all need to be living a life of service because that is who our Savior is. You see, James encountered Jesus. He became a Christian, and it turned him into a servant. It also turned him into a pastor. It also turned him into a pastor. So if you think your history exempts you from service in the kingdom of God, think again. You could not get worse than James. He not only did not follow Jesus, he actively opposed his big brother. Who had more time to see that Jesus was the Messiah than James? And he missed it, and he blew it. And yet, Jesus changed his life, and then he gave him ministry. He became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, right? And it was a very, very large church. So if you uh, remember Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, James was the first megachurch pastor. It's that a strange thing to think about? Right, so he's the first megachurch pastor. He's leading this huge church, and then persecution breaks out. Acts chapter eight, huge persecution, and the megachurch gets spread all around the region, and all of a sudden, James is left with a much smaller group of people. And all these people he'd been investing in and pastoring and loving and praying for have been scattered all over the region. He doesn't know how they're doing. So what he did is he preached a sermon to his church in Jerusalem, and then he wrote it down, and that became the book of James. That's what most scholars think, that this is actually an outline of a sermon which is why it's got so many illustrations, which is why it's so challenging, because this is James, the preacher. He wrote down this sermon, and then he sent it to his, uh, his flock that was dispersed all across the region. That's why, you see how he called them? He called them the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's what he's saying. Hey, you're still the people of God, even though you've been dispersed. And he says, greetings. All right, then he gets right into verse two, something that we all face, and that's trials, which is something that his people were definitely facing as they've been scattered. Look at verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the first thing that we would learn. Number one, the gospel changes how you face trials. The gospel changes how you face trials. Did you notice that James wrote, when you meet trials, not if you meet trials? Right, we all know that's true. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter if you're a male or female. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little bit of money. You are going to face trials, right? Can I get an amen on that? Like you are going to face trials. You're gonna face emotional trials and relational trials and spiritual trials and financial trials. You're gonna face, man, trials in your marriage and trials in parenting and trials with your in-laws. Like you're gonna face trials. And the good news about the Bible is it's not a naive book. It doesn't act like life is really easy and if you repent, believe in Jesus, all your dreams will come true and like, you'll just like walk around on a cloud all the time. No, the, the Bible is extraordinarily realistic. It says this life is full of trials. They are coming. And I love what Tim Keller, one pastor said. He said, anything that can happen to any human being can also happen to a Christian. Anything that can happen to any human being can also happen to a Christian. There's two things we need to learn from this. Number one, if something hard has happened in your life, it's, you didn't do anything wrong. You ever felt that way? Like, oh man, it must be because like I, I sinned in some way or like I'm not being faithful, God's letting this happen to me. No, that, James is like, no. There is no connection between a trial you're facing and some sort of sin that you've committed, right? So on the one hand, don't think that you've done something wrong if you're facing trials. You're actually experiencing what most Christians throughout history have experienced. But also, don't be surprised when you face trials, right? Don't be like, well, I didn't expect that to happen. Like the book, of the Bible is very, very clear. Like trials are coming. And what's, what's I've seen in, in kind of my experience is that people deal with trials in one of two ways. I see some people try to avoid trials. And uh, I see these people think like, okay, I just need to change jobs or move cities or change relationships and then I'll get out of this trial. 
But the problem that we all know is that trials chase you through cities and they chase you through jobs and they chase you through relationships, right? Like that anger issue you had with your old girlfriend is gonna come back, right? Like it's, it's just not going anywhere. So you can't really avoid trials. So the second thing that we try to do, um, and I see a lot of Christians do this, is we just try to endure trials, right? Like, all right, this is a hard season at work. I'm just gonna like bear up under it and you know, grin and bear it. Or like, man, my anxiety is really, really hard. But I'm, if I can just get the right medication or the right counseling, like it will go away and then I can get back to my life. Now, there's a lot to be said for patient endurance. That's a biblical virtue. But here's a mistake that I think we make. In the midst of trials, we forget to ask an important question, which is this. What does faithfulness look like in this trial? What does faithfulness look like in this trial? Because here's what I'm tempted to do. Maybe you are as well. We think of trials as a fundamental interruption in the purpose of our lives, don't we? And it's like, all right, my life is on pause. The purpose of my life is on pause. So I just have to get through this and there's nothing nothing good can happen in the midst of this trial. But here's the problem. Some of your trials will last your entire life, right? If you lose a loved one, that's not going away. Chronic health problems, that's not going away. If you have a child with special needs, that's not going away. Pastorally, I have talked to some of you who have struggled with anxiety and depression for a very long time. And so if we think of trials as some sort of interruption in our life, as sort of a pause button on our purpose and meaning in life, friends, we could be on pause for a very long time. So here's what James is saying. He's saying, look, you can't control if trials come, but you can control your attitude towards them. You can't control if trials come, but you can control your attitude towards them. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to count it joy. I want you to consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds what? (laughs) Like, you want me to do what, James? Like, that doesn't make any sense. How could I possibly consider something that is painful and something that is disappointing and something that is challenging as joy? Well, the only way you could do that is if that trial that's really challenging got you something that you really love, right? Think about childbirth. Childbirth is a trial, y'all, okay? I mean, I've never experienced personally, but I was so affected with our second child that I passed out. I passed out in the delivery room. My wife and I were both wheeled out in wheelchairs, right? It's a trial, y'all, okay? You guys are laughing. Just come to me in a couple months, okay? Right, childbirth is a trial. It's painful and it takes months to recover from, but none of you would ever text your friend and be like, girl, I'm so sorry. I heard about the birth of your child. Girl, I am praying for you. If you just need to talk, no, right? Why not? Because it's a joyful thing. Now, it's a trial, it's hard, it's painful, but what you get through the trial is so worthwhile, you're so elated, you're so overjoyed that we celebrate. What do we do? We consider it joy. Here's what, here's what James is saying. If Christ-likeness is your greatest desire in life, then you can consider even trials a joy because they are forming your character to be more like Jesus. You see that? If your greatest desire in life is Christ-likeness, then trials become your servant rather than your enemy. Because even though they're hard and even though you're suffering and even though you're disappointed and even though you're grieved, Man, they are forming in you steadfastness and they are forming in you character and they are making you more like Christ. And if that is your greatest desire, then they're actually your servant rather than your enemy. And now in the next couple of verses, he's gonna get more specific about how we face our trials. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I used to think this was a random divergence until I realized just how much wisdom you need in the midst of trials. You ever been there? You're like, things are hard at work. Do I look for another job or do I try to make it better? I don't know. Chemistry with my boyfriend is not what it used to be. 
Do we push through or do we go our separate ways? I don't know. Man, I, I'm really, really stressed because I'm working full time and I'm in a grad program. Do I take less hours? Do I stop the grad program entirely? I don't, do I just push through? I don't know. I need wisdom. And the good news is that God says, hey, when you need wisdom, God gives it to you generously. He's not like a supervisor that's frustrated with you. He's not like, are you serious? You need wisdom again? No, he's like, man, I want you to come. I want to give you wisdom because I'm, I'm your heavenly father. And do you know where God has deposited about 90% of his wisdom? In this, in the scriptures. Over thousands of years, God has given us his word. He is, there's an enormous amount of wisdom in the scriptures for almost every single thing that you're asking, right? About relationships, about marriage, about parenting, about work, about personal holiness, about friendship about how to relate to your parents, about personal finances. There's an enormous amount of wisdom in the scriptures. And so the first thing that we should do when we are looking for wisdom is say, man, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible have to say about this area of my life? Because there is a warning in this passage. Do you see it? James said that you should ask without doubting because the one who doubts will not receive wisdom from God. Now, at first, that's really intimidating because I don't know if I've ever asked anything with 100% faith. But I did, a, I did a study on this word, and what I realized is that this word does not mean intellectual questions. You know what it means? It means a divided heart. James refers to this kind of person as a double-minded person, down in verse 8. You see that? Here's what that means. You have divided loyalties. You're not committed to doing what God calls you to do. You want some of God's wisdom, and you want some of your own wisdom, and you want some of the world's wisdom. And you're like, I'll just kind of like make a wisdom ball out of this. And James is like, look, if that's how you're coming to God, you shouldn't expect to receive wisdom for him. But if you come in faith saying, Lord, I'm committed to you, I'm gonna do what your word says, even if I disagree with it, even if it doesn't always make sense to me, you can, man, you can go with confidence that you're gonna receive wisdom from your heavenly father. So when you're in trials, you need a lot of wisdom and God promises to give it. Now James is gonna talk about a specific trial relating to money. Verse nine, let the lowly brother, so that's a poor brother, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man, so also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So having a lot and having a little are both trials in different ways. If you have a little, you're going to be tempted to self-deprecation. Because here's the truth. People with little don't have influence in our world. If you have little money, if you have little gifts, if you have little charisma, you are not going to be an influencer. You are not gonna have a lot of followers on social media. You are not gonna become the CEO of some company. If you don't have a really high IQ, you're not gonna get into UVA. You're not gonna be able to go to med school. You're not gonna have a lot of the things that the world says are valuable. And as a result, your temptation is going to be to have too low a view of yourself. You're gonna be tempted to self-deprecation and self-hatred and I'm the worst and I can never do anything valuable. And so what James says is, hey, if you are struggling with having a little, maybe it's money, maybe it's beauty, maybe it's friendships. Maybe it's influence. Maybe it's connections. I don't know what it is. James says, you need to boast in your exaltation. What does that mean? It means you need to actively call to mind all the things that are true about you in Christ. Here's what that means. You may not have a lot in this world, but you have a fabulous inheritance in heaven. You may not feel known or seen or heard or cared about by this world, but you are known and seen and loved and cared about by God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And you need to call that to mind because your temptation is going to be to have a too low view of yourself. On the flip side of this, there's also a temptation of having much, right? So you might have a lot of money. You might have a lot of beauty. You might have a lot of charisma, right? You might have a lot of connections or a lot of influence. You might be very, very smart. And here's what happens with people who have a lot in this world. You know what happens? You tend to think you don't need anyone. And the reality is that if I had to say which of these is a, a bigger temptation for our church, I'd say it's this one. 
Because did you know that if you make, as a combined family income, over $30,000, you are in the 1% of the wealthiest people in the entire world? Here's a crazy idea. If you have a garage or a storage space, like in your basement, or like a self-storage space outside of your home, you are in like the 0.1% of the wealthiest people in the world. Do you know that most people in Africa live in homes that are the same size and made out of the same material as a storage unit in our community? I don't say that to make you feel bad. There's nothing inherently wicked about wealth, but there is something inherently dangerous about wealth. Because here's what wealth does to our hearts. You ready? It hardens them. And it makes us feel self-sufficient. It's like, well, I don't need God to heal me. I'll just go to UVA hospital. Well, I don't need God to be my hope. That's why I have a 401k. Well, I don't need God to be my friend. I have a lot of friends because I have a lot of money and I'm charismatic and I have a fun personality and I have a lake house so people can hang out with me. This is why Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that rich people are more sinful than poor people. They're not. Everybody's sinful equally. It's that people with little tend to feel their need more than people with much. I was talking to a woman just this past week whose husband is a venture capitalist. If you don't know what that means, it means they've got bank, okay? That's what that means. But because of a whole crazy set of circumstances, her family has been homeless for a year. They've been bouncing around from like rental property to rental property because they just can't get it figured out. I was talking to her and she said, you know what? I have trusted God more practically over the last year than I ever had before. You see, not having a lot helped her pass the test of wealth. So if you are wealthy, if you have much, whether it's money or intelligence or charisma or beauty or whatever, you need to boast in your humiliation. That's what James says. Well, what does that mean? It means you need to bring to mind the fact that everything that you have in this world is going to be gone in a moment. You might be really smart, but you're going to die. You might be really pretty, but it's going to sag, right? Like you might be really, really rich, but the dollar is going to inflate, Right? Like, like, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have. It's going to go away, either while you're alive or after you pass. And if that doesn't do it for you, just think about your spiritual condition. The Bible is a very honest book, and it says, here's what's true about us. We were so sinful that the only way that we could be saved was for the Son of God to be crucified. Like, you can't contemplate that and, like, have this high view of yourself, right? That humbles you. So what James says is, hey, if you're a lowly brother, you need to call to mind your exaltation in Christ. If you're, if you're a brother or sister with much, which I think most of us would be in that category, we need to bring to mind the humiliation of Christ. And we need to say, hey, we're not that impressive. We're not self-sufficient. I need the grace of God. So we face the trial of little and we face the trial of much in different ways. The last thing James is going to talk about, about trials, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So practically, when you're in a trial, it's helpful to keep the end in mind, okay? All of your trials won't end, right? Some of them you'll have your entire life, but most of them will end. Did you ever try to hold your breath in a tunnel as a kid? You remember this? I could never make it. I could never make it, right? Until I started looking at the end of the tunnel. Did you ever figure this out? mentally, for whatever reason, if I stared at the end of the tunnel and I saw it get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, I could like make it through the agonizing 15 seconds at the end, right? Well, that's what James is saying. Hey, it's helpful to keep the end in mind. Your trial will have an end date. Now, for some of you, and in some trials, that won't be in this life. But here's the good news of the gospel. Because of what Christ has done for you, when you are welcomed into heaven, you won't be welcomed into trials, you'll be welcomed into triumph. So most of your trials will end at some point in this life, and even the trials that don't, because of the victory of Christ, will end one day. And that is one of the ways that we stand firm in the midst of our trials. Now, 
James is going to pivot now in verse 13 from talking about trials to talking about temptations. How does the gospel help us face our temptations? Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's number two. The gospel changes how you face temptation. The gospel changes how you face temptation. James makes it really, really clear where temptation comes from. He says temptation does not come from God. Temptation comes from your own evil desires. You see, we roll our eyes when people say the devil made me do it. We're like, no, he didn't. Like, you chose to do that thing. But we actually make that same excuse in more subtle ways, don't we? My, my circumstances made me do it. My, the, the situation at work made me do it. My biology made me do it. My family history made me do it. My sexual desires made me do it. My stress level made me do it. Right? What are we doing? We're trying to take the blame and move it away from us out somewhere else. But James says, nope, the problem is not out there, friends. The problem is in here. The problem's not out there. The problem is in here. You're, all, you're tempted by evil things because you have evil desires in your heart. If you didn't have evil desires in your heart, you wouldn't be tempted by evil things. Now, let me tell you how this has come home to me practically. Um, I never struggled with anger until I had kids, right? And I love my kids. They are awesome, but they can drive me crazy like nobody else. And what I've had to own is that my kids do not make me angry. My kids create an environment for my anger to come out. See what I'm saying? It's not their fault. They're not making me anger. I have anger in me that they are simply the means by which it is coming out. Friends, the truth is that it's not, the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. We have evil desires in our heart and that is why we are drawn to evil things. Why are you drawn to promote yourself? Because you have a heart that wants to be the center of the world. Why are you drawn to impure activities? Because you have, you have a flesh that wants impure activities. Why are you drawn to jealousy? Because you have a heart that wants everything to be yours and nothing to be anyone else's. Right? James is like, welcome to the human heart. This is what it is. That being the case, friends, we should take sin very seriously. Do you see what James says? He says, look, sin never stops at sin. When it, it's full grown, it becomes death. Now, for some people, that is physical death. But for most people, that's emotional, relational, financial, physical, death, destruction in your life. But here's the problem. We don't take sin very seriously. Because here's what we say, not for me. Yeah, I know, James, you're saying that, but not for me, not in this instance, not in my circumstances. It's just one month. It's not that serious. Everyone else does it. You know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like what Satan said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said, if you take of that fruit and eat it, you will die. And Satan whispered, no, you won't. What do they do? Oh, no, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be fine. Let's take it, let's eat it, and the destruction that has resulted from that is manifold. Right? We often make the same mistake that our first parents make. We don't trust God's word, and so we treat sin like it's safe when it's very, very dangerous. So this weekend, I used a table saw. I don't know if you know what a table saw is, but it's, it's very sharp, it's very powerful, and it will cut your finger off like it's nothing, like just deca decapitate it. Now imagine you came over to my house and I had taken the safety guard off of the blade, okay? And so this like very sharp blade is just like whirling around right here. And I was trying to see how close I could get my finger to the blade before it got decapitated. What would you think? You would think I was an idiot. You'd be like, I'm not going to that church anymore, right? Like, what is wrong with this guy? And I, I say that in jest, right? But, but friends, how often do we treat sin that way? 
It's like, how close can I get before I've crossed the line? How many drinks can I have? How far can me and my boyfriend go? How many times can I miss church before it's sinful? Like, how committed do I have to be to my missional community? How pure do I have to be in the media that I intake? How, you know, how up, upright do I have to be at work? How close can I get to the line without technically being in sin? It represents the fact that we don't understand sin. We don't think the Bible is true. We think sin is like this little small dog that we have on a leash that we can control when actually the scriptures say it is a lion that is lurking trying to devour you. And do you know what lions do? They get down so they look small and you can't see them until the last moment. That's what your sin does. It, it try, wants to convince you that it's small and it's not a big deal until it devours you. If we really believe what the Bible says about temptation, we will fight temptation and we will flee, flee temptation, but we will never flirt with temptation. We will fight or flee from temptation, but we will not flirt with it. Think about this. I was thinking about, this is, this is really convicting. Um, we all agree that the coronavirus is dangerous, right? And so as a result, we've, we've done a lot as a society to try to stop its spread, right? We don't want to get sick. We don't want our loved ones to get sick, understandably, right? So what do we do? Well, we, we wear masks. Some of us wear two masks, right? And uh, we use hand sanitizer and we stay six feet apart. And some people are, have not been into a gathered uh, audience in a very, very long time, right? And I get it because we're, we don't want to get sick, right? We are very, very safety conscious, right? We're very aware of physical ailment. But friends, how aware are we of spiritual ailment? What does it say that we will go to these vast lengths to not get a physical ailment and yet we just like flirt with temptation like it's no big deal? Like we're like, we've got streaming services that are bringing temptation into our house and we're clicking next and watching episode after episode after episode. And we're like, I'm having such a hard time living a pure life. I'm like, we'll put the safety guard on the soul, right? Like, right? I mean, I do it, you do it. We just have a hard time taking sin seriously. So what James is saying is friends, do not be deceived. Sin is not your friend. As the old Puritan pastor, John Owen said, you are either killing sin or sin is killing you. Those are the two options. Sin is like a cancer in your life. Either you are killing cancer or a cancer is killing you. There is no neutral. There's no like we're buddies, right? You are either killing it or it is killing you. So what we need to do is we need to have a clear-eyed view of temptation. That's what James wants to give us. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, because we're all prone to that. I include myself in that. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, why does he start talking about that? Because isn't it true that in every single sin that we go to, we're looking for something, right? Like we're longing, why do we, why do we get into romantic relationships we shouldn't? It's because we're longing for acceptance. Why do we overwork and not have good boundaries with work? Because man, we like the self-worth that we feel by being good at work and people needing us, right? Why do we drink too much? Because, man, we want to feel that comfort that we, that little bit of comfort that we get from, man, just having another glass of wine, right? We're looking for good gifts in these things, but they never deliver. And so what James is saying is, do not be deceived, my, my beloved brothers. What you're looking for is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift, the true gift that isn't going to disappoint you, comes from him. And he doesn't change. And he's not like a shadow that looks like one thing, and then you actually get it, and it's a whole other thing. He can be trusted. So James says, you need to have a clear-eyed vision of sin if you're going to face temptation well. And then he gives us hope. Because here's the reality. I'm not doing real well with this chapter, and you probably aren't either. Right? Like, is your life defined by service to others, or is it defined by selfish motives? I mean, sometimes we serve for selfish reasons, don't we? 
Is it, when you face trials, do you do it like this, this God-centered view of like, this is gonna make me more like Christ? Or are you like me and you kind of become like self-consumed and you pity yourself and, right? Are you fighting and fleeing temptations or are you kind of flirting with temptation? I think the truth is, James chapter one gets all up in our business and so James ends it with a, with a word of hope. He's like, hey, don't, as I come at you about this stuff, don't forget this. Verse 18, I love this. Of his own will, God brought you forth by the word of truth. And brought you forth is James's way of saying saved you, saved your soul. Here's what this means. God did not save you because you were holy and righteous and awesome. God saved you because it was his will to save you. Here's what this means. God did not save you when you faced trials perfectly. He didn't save you when you and your boyfriend had a perfectly pure month. He didn't save you when you had a quiet time 21 days in a row. He didn't save you when you shared the gospel with your coworker. Do you know why he saved you? Because he's gracious and kind and merciful and good. He brought you forth by his own will. Not because you earned it, not because you're awesome, but because he is gracious and kind. Friends, that is good news. It means that God can never be disenamored with you because he was never enamored with you in the first place. It's not like he thought you were awesome. It's not he was like, I am surprised by this behavior, right? Like he knew exactly what he was getting and knowing that he loved you and he chose you and he sent Christ to give you hope. Do you know how he brought you forth by the word of truth? At great cost to himself. He sent Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus lived the perfect life. I mean, who is more of a servant than Christ? Who left heaven and came to earth so that we might have hope? Who ministered to the multitudes, fed the hungry, healed the sick, cared for the poor? Who has ever faced trials with more resolve than Christ? The scriptures say that he turned his face like flint towards Jerusalem, even though he knew what was awaiting him. Why? Because he would not be undone by his trials. And who has ever faced temptation with greater courage and resolve? Jesus' temptation was so great that he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew what awaited him. He knew what awaited him, but he still went through with it. Why? For you. Romans chapter 12 says that Jesus endured the cross for you, that you were the reason that he faced trial, that you were the reason that he faced temptation, that you were the reason that he was rejected by his father, that you were the reason that the wrath of God was poured out on him so that you could be saved. Friends, that is how you learn to be a servant. That is how you learn to face trials. That is how you learn to fight temptation as you see Jesus doing it for you. You say, Jesus, you did it for me, and now I wanna do it in response to your grace, not to earn my salvation, but as a result of my salvation. I want my orthodoxy, my belief in Christ to pour forth into orthopraxy, right living. And when that happens, friends, we become a powerful witness in our community. Let it be said of Center Church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your honest and strong words that how they warn us of sin and how they lead us into righteousness. We love you, we need you, and we pray that as we take communion together that you would open our eyes to the glory of the gospel. Well, today we have the opportunity to take communion together. So when you came in, there should have been a little container here on your seat. And I'd encourage you to open that top seal so that you can get to the wafer. On the night that he was betrayed, after he washed his disciples' feet, Jesus took the bread. And he said, this bread represents my body, which was broken for you. My body was broken so that your body doesn't have to be. And that means two things. Number one, it means if, if you're not a follower of Christ, this isn't, this isn't for you. Don't take this. Instead, take, take what it symbolizes. Take Jesus Christ. But if you are a follower of Christ, when you take the bread, you remember the incredible lengths that Christ went to save you, that Christ went to redeem you. 
So as you hold the wafer in your hand, take a moment and just think about what it means that Jesus Christ, God the Son, was broken for you. Now together as a church, take this in remembrance of him. In the same way, Jesus took the cup that night and he said, this cup represents my blood that will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. That though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. So hold this in your hand and think for a moment on this reality, that if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see shame. He sees a son or a daughter purified by the blood of Jesus. Take this in remembrance of him. And in response to these things, would you stand?